Hi there, everybody. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. And this is episode 32 of Fried Squirms. Wow. I didn't realize we were that far in already. I know. But... It's interesting. It's when you put it into uh, context, it's like, wow, we've done 32 films. That's really cool. And what? So this would be the start of our back half on our Vampire Month. If you haven't been with us up to this point, we've decided to cover vampires for this month because we we hadn't yet. Yeah, we, we got so far in, and there was some time we'd have to do them. So why not now? Yeah, and unlike when we did slashers, where we kind of did a running history of modern slashers with the vampires, we instead just decided to each choose a film pre 1990 and one post 1990. We felt 1990 was a good arbitrary date because it's almost 30 years ago now. Yeah, that's hard to believe. But we both figured that was probably a good point for some of our audience listeners. It was either a jumping point into it or maybe a good point up to the 90s where you've seen some stuff prior to that. So mm-hmm. anyhow, yeah, we flipped a coin. Anyhow, you won. Yeah, I won. So and so far, you've had the most surprising picks. I figured because the way that we're doing this, I know eventually we'll have to get back into vampire films. So I wanted to choose some unique ones that I'm not sure if we'll, you know, get the cover, say a more formal format. So I wanted to choose some fun ones, some different ones, some ones that we can talk about interesting people with as well. Right. So for your first film, Blew Me Out of the Water, chose Blackula. Yeah, it's funky, man. It was not what I was expecting to start Vampire Month with, but that was a lot of fun. Exploitation. Yeah. Black exploitation. Learned a lot of cool facts about some of the uh, cast and Weirdly crew. progressive film. You know something I learned now, going back and revisiting it a little bit? What's that? Was that this was the first black exploitation horror film. Oh. Yeah, 1972. That sounds right. Then I followed up with... Count Dracula, El, El Conde, Conde Dracula, Dracula, El Conte Dracula, 1970 Count Dracula starring Christopher Lee, so we got to talk about the man again. Yeah, Christopher Lee. We're, we'll probably hmm, talk about him a little bit. And so now we're to your first post-90s flick, which is also doubly exciting because that means at the end of this episode, I get to reveal mine, yeah. and I've just been like brimming with excitement all week, and I know that you've been curious as well. Oh, we, I can't help but to be curious about your pick. So for this week, we will be going with 1993's Kronos, directed by Guillermo del Toro. But before we get into that, we just watched something that I think we should probably bring up oh, real quick man. before yes, we delve into do. this. So I don't think it was technically part of the con. I think it was just something that... Is it Lionsgate that do those movies? It looked like it was. Anyway, I think it was just good marketing to take advantage of the fact that there was going to be a lot of entertainment news coming out around this time. But four days ago, a trailer dropped for the new Jigsaw movie. Whoa. Looks gnarly. I was not expecting that. I guess, I mean, maybe if I had been keeping up better with the news, people could have... I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there on the internet right now just, like, screaming at me, like, you motherfucker, like, they've cast this and that, you know, a long time ago. I don't know. There's only so much news I can keep up with, unfortunately. But I want to see it. It looks interesting. I mean, it doesn't look bad at all. Yeah, the Saw series is kind of a weird one for me. I'll always watch them, but some of them aren't the greatest, not the biggest fan of fucking torture porn. <laughs> That's as understandable, of course. To begin with, anyway. But I've always found them interesting. And just all the different devices and shit They're are always clever. crazy. Very clever. It's always very intricate. I love the complexity of it all, really. Even the ones that are kind of like a little simpler, like number two springs to mind. Where it's kind of just the fucking survivors going through the house and trying to get the fucking shit. Pretty straightforward compared to some of them. It's still kind of neat when you go through it and shit. 
when I think about the the franchise itself, I think of course the device is used for them. But I think sometimes too, I think about how stylish some of the films are. Some of them are shot really well done, as far as I guess the environment that they're in can be interesting. It's always also been kind of weird to me because it's kind of like the weird mainstream, socially acceptable torture porn. Exactly, it's like more like the water other... cooler talk kind of movie, I suppose. More so than hostile. Yeah, more so than hostile. <laughs> But in general, people, like, they're not freaked out too much if you've seen the latest Saw movie. But they'll look at you with disgust if you've seen Tokyo Gore Police. <laughs> yeah. Guilty. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, exactly. I know exactly what you Even though there's some mean. really disgusting shit in some of these Saw movies. There is, man. It's, it's some violent things that you witness on film. I, it's to weird. each their own but, is the yeah, way I kind of yeah. look at it, you know? It, it's just, it, it always felt weird to me that it's like... The, the socially acceptable torture porn. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be the, the fringe, you know what I mean, who will watch something that's more mainstream than somebody who will cross another boundary and watch something a little bit more extreme. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it's one thing to demonize somebody for watching that when you already watch this. It's strange, but I, w- I want to see it. It looks fun. Yeah. <laughs> it looks fun. It looks Yeah, it looks fun. Being a horror fan, it looks fun. I say why the, not, man. Man, I'll the, check the it devices out. all looked pretty neat. They all seem sort of seemed based around the same sort of theme. It would make in a sense. bunch of different scenarios, but I, I don't know. I, I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out. But the part towards the end with the puppet rolling out was dope. Because like, you you're just like, you know oh my god, is. it's back! Like you already knew it was back. You already saw the puzzle piece cut out of a cheek and shit. I think but... that kind of reaffirms their stance on that. Mm-hmm. But I guess with that. Let's get into Guts and Bolts of Kronos. Yeah, Guts and Bolts of Kronos. Wow. In, in this case, kind of literally Guts and Bolts, right? We'll find I mean, out why. We think yeah. about it, right? Guts and Bolts. I think that's, uh, no puns intended, but there you go. Guts and Bolts. Guts and Bolts. Guts and Bolts time. Yeah, so Kronos, we already mentioned Guillermo del Toro. I feel like this is another one where it'd almost be best to breeze through this because some of these people I fucking love and I really want to talk about some really yeah, cool things. We could things. spend an extended amount of time in this section alone, but I, I feel like it's appropriate just to, like to kind of skim the surface and that way we can get into it in the next section. But well, we will point out now, though, this is his first feature film for Guillermo del Toro. It certainly though, is, and I felt that which was... Which is a little bit of a draw in some ways because it really shows off some of the genius very early on. Yeah, when when I watched it, it reminded me of some of his later films. Oh, very much so. There's themes that definitely echo throughout his work. no doubt. And it's also the start of a good partnership with Ron Perlman, who's also in this. Yeah, it was interesting how he got involved, too. Ron Perlman's involved. There's an Argentinian film (sighs) actor that's involved. Federico Lupi? That's his name? Precisely. He has an interesting name for his character, Jesus uh, Gris. Mm-hmm. Gray Jesus. Gray Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, Gray Jesus. Writer being Guillermo as well, so mm-hmm. he directs, of course, on top of writing this. Our cinematographer for this film is Guillermo Navarro. He had some interesting credits, too, that I'd like to talk about like, a little bit later on. Most everybody in this film, production-wise, behind the scenes in his cast, they've gone on to you know later do other productions that people are probably familiar with, like The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, probably Hellboy and things like that. So a lot of these names will keep popping up over and over because and he, they're a part of a production definitely, company. Well, yeah, behind the scenes, definitely same names over and over and over again. Absolutely. But he also likes to work with same actors over and over again. We already said Ron Perlman, as you mentioned in like Hellboy and stuff. Loopy was also in Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone. Yeah, he sure was. 
other people that he meets in later films end up then going on in to be more oh. and more of his films. So yeah, it's if he takes a liking to you and you're you get to happen to be one of his films, you're more than likely a part of that family now, and you'll be in more films to come. Which I'm okay with, because he tends to get amazing people, so... He's all about extended family, and he feels like if you're comfortable with a group of people and you can trust them, keep the chemistry going. You mentioned the uh, cinematographer. Editor for this film was Raul de Valles. Music by Javier Alvarez Fuentes. I've got special effects. This is more so the makeup effects, I believe. is Lorenzo Chovo Cordero. And the visual effects for this is William Cushuani. Produced by Arthur Gorson, Berth Navarro, Alejandro Springal, Bernard Nussbaumer. And production companies, there's a shit ton of them. It's like if you're interested, you can reference the database, movie database that is. Same thing with distributors. There's quite several of them for different countries, various countries. The budget I have for this is $2 million. Gross is about... It didn't really do too well in the States, although it didn't get very many screens. Well, that doesn't take away from a success worldwide because this is a reputable film worldwide. Uh, I was going to say it, it was, what, two theaters in its opening It premiered weekend? in two theaters and I think 28 screens total so, for its release in the States. Yeah, its box office isn't going to be that much. But it is a very highly acclaimed movie. Oh, um, absolutely. For yeah, very good reason. It's well acted throughout by everybody. It was Mexico's selection, what they put forth for the 66th Academy Awards as best foreign language, but it wasn't actually awesome. selected as a... It's what they selected to put forth, but the Academy didn't select theirs. So. Yeah, it, it did win like best awards for director and I think feature film, etc. for Mexico. Like the Mexico's version of the Oscar Awards, I guess during its release. It's part of the Criterion Collection? Yeah, I just so happened to that. That does say that. something, like... It was restored, and when, it, when they restored it, you can definitely tell. It's, it's a beautiful film. Most other things I want to say about this movie, I, I'd really rather save for the next portion of our podcast. Yeah, there's a few other actors we can mention briefly. One thing I did yeah. want to mention, too, yeah, because yeah. this is the second time for us. And by that, I mean there are no taglines for this film. Oh, what? Two in a row. Damn. I, I was like, well, shit. We, we that... beat that drum last week, so here we are again. I'm sorry. Are, are, <laughs> you, not... are you going to be okay? I don't know if if we go 0 for three, then maybe I, I feel like I feel bit. like my pick has to have a tagline. Like I don't see it not having a tagline. Okay, so I was thinking to be about honest, this film just it because up. its name is Kronos. It's like I can't see it having a big tagline if there is one for this film. I didn't think that this one wasn't going to have one, or else I would have made sure that mine had one just to keep you happy. That's okay. It's not a. It's not really a big thing, but it might be. <laughs> you're like we'll see <laughs> I, know. I don't want to have a freak out right now but uh, anyhow outside of that like I said it was released in 1993 more appropriately I think it was in like March it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival and then it later screened in December of 1993 in Mexico I think it got a screening at a New York film festival for like debut writers and screen directors and then it finally got its formal release here in the States in May of 94 and that's when we talked about it had like limited really limited screenings Right. I mean, oh, I just realized, you know, like we've been saying that it, it's awesome in a vampire movie and this and that, and maybe we should give just a little little synopsis so people know. It's a vague synopsis would be a grandfather gets inadvertently turned into a vampire. Finding a mechanical device unknown to him. Yeah, pretty much. And drawn into everything that comes with. And then from that point, of course... It spawns a sequence of events that leads to its conclusion, just like most films, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose most films conclude. That's that's a good point. That's the way I could say. <laughs> but no, it's I, I really enjoy this film. But um, 
Outside of that, I guess warning maybe? We have the synopsis out of the way. Should give out some fair warnings perhaps? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's... There is a little bit of gore. There's a little bit of violence. A little, a little bit, bit of, violence, of language. A little bit of violence, a little bit of language. That's about it. A little bit of bare old man chest. You're going to see some old man chest, which... It's not bad old man chest. No. It could be worse. Yeah. If you consider dancing a form of sensuality, maybe... If you're not comfortable with that, there's that. <laughs> if you're not comfortable with uh, dancing and old people engaging in PDA, then you're probably not going to be comfortable with this film. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the worst thing I can say about this. It's a pretty accessible movie, really. I agree with that. I was like, I can't think of anything else outside of that that would prohibit people from seeing this film. I don't think it's a rated R film, I don't think. Shit, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be. You'd be I, hard-pressed to believe be, that. Just because of the language. I, they do swear a couple times. Mostly, yeah. mostly Fucking Ron Perlman. <laughs> yeah, Ron Perlman's awesome. God, yeah. I, I did say I wanted to mention a few of the other actors and oh, actresses yeah, yeah. really quick. The other actors, actresses in this film, we'll go with Margarita Isabel plays Mercedes. Tamara Shaneth plays Aurora. Daniel Jimenez Cacho plays Tito, who is, I think in that film, he's more of like a mortician, I suppose, of some uh, sort. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Alchemist is Mario Ivan Martinez. The Funeral Director, Juan Carlos Colombo. Outside of that, there's a couple of appearances by, I think, some of the producers and people behind the scenes, like Lorenzo Cordero. He plays the Watchman. There's a scene with a Watchman. And Guillermo even makes an appearance unaccredited. Yeah, towards the beginning of the movie. Walks his dog. So outside of that, that's pretty much like some of my notes. Okay. For the film itself. I mean... I'm ready to go. Let's, let's get into Yeah, the, man. Let's, let's get into let's how squeal, I made baby. squeal. Let's squeal. How does that make you squeal? Woo! And we're squealing. It's squeal time, baby. Shit, so, Kronos. Let's get it out of the way right now. Like, we were vague before. Device fucking turns this dude into a vampire, but it seems like he's never heard of a goddamn vampire before. <laughs> yeah, he's dumbfounded with the facts. It is but an it's... interesting anecdote in that storytelling. That's what makes this movie so special, is that it's not a standard vampire movie. It's a completely new way of seeing it done, of this guy trying to sort of figure out what's going on. It's as much him sort of coming to terms with himself, and sort of trying to survive with this new change. And It's a very modern take on a vampire story without being, I hate to use the word cliche, but you know, without using certain tropes and being overtly formulaic, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And as we said, first feature film from Guillermo, so it also really sets up some of his work to come. Strongly. First off, Guillermo del Toro, I love me some Guillermo del Toro. I can't say that I have seen everything that he's done so far, but the things I've seen, I tend to watch and rewatch and rewatch, and the other things I just haven't got to yet. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many hours in a day, and to be honest, I also kind of like to just, like, do drugs and not do things that I'm supposed to, so... Sometimes you need some me time. Right. Nothing wrong with that. We're all guilty of it in some form. So his other ones I'll eventually get to, but Guillermo del Toro gives me the perfect chance to bring up something that we would never be able to talk about on this podcast otherwise. See, I figured it'd be a fun way to talk about him in different regards. And this is perfect. We're talking about vampires, and fucking comic books are all the rage right now. He did the best one of the Blade movies. Yeah. He did two, Blade right? 2. Blade 2's great. If you can overlook the really shitty CG fight in the beginning, then Blade Two is the best one. Has Ron Perlman again. Ron's the man. Because of my background, and I've mentioned like loving like Godzilla and other things of that nature. Fucking Pacific Rim. 
dude, I cried in the theater of Pacific Rim. It touched my my inner eight year old that much, like, awesome. and not in a bad way. No, it it's wasn't just, a bad touch. It wasn't a bad touch. Like I cried watching it. <laughs> it dude. wasn't a bad touch, folks. From Hellboy, both of them are great. I'm so sad that agree. they're rebooting instead of getting a third. But whatever, it happens. I understand. The, the, I mean, that's the only drawback to being a fan of Guillermo del Toro's is he always is trying to do so much and has so much on his plate that like 90% of the projects he announces don't really get done. But then he just pulls through in big ways with the ones that do get done. We can relate to an extent because there's so many things we want to watch and or do. We're just limited with time and you know resources and energy, things like that. Same thing with this gentleman. He's human, ladies and gentlemen, you know. He has other ideas spawning all the time. Dude, he was almost the director for The Hobbit. Yeah, that's a fact. He still gets credit for his work, I guess, in the script Well, yeah, because he put in years and years and years of work to the point where they couldn't not use parts of his script because they needed to get the movie done. But the problem was it took them so long to get the movie done, and he had other obligations that at a certain point he had to bow out because he told them, like, hey, I only have so much time, and it goes over that time, then, then I'm gone. And it went over that time, so he was gone. Deuces. Unfortunately, because I think a GDT version would have been great. Especially his storytelling oh, yeah. and his visual aspects. Yeah. Would have been really interesting. Dude, Pan's Labyrinth is just a beautiful, just film. beautiful movie. Just, I, I love that movie. Me and an ex used to actually watch it quite often. It's really good. She was bilingual, so that helped because she'd actually understand all the Spanish. But. Oh, taco flavor kisses. <laughs> Not familiar with actually when Netflix was kind of I guess starting up where you could get the DVD sent to you. I did get The Devil's Backbone sent to me because I was interested. Mm. I knew about Del Toro and some of his films, and anyhow, I took a chance on it, watch it. I'm not big on ghost stories. I enjoy them, but they're not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good story. One thing that I noticed too is his use of interweaving certain aspects of fairy tales and horror aspects and just even the human condition right your emotions we mentioned a couple times that there's certain things that pop up throughout his work and how this movie lays the foundation and so now that we're in the spoiler zone we can just straight out say so the device the chronos device dude likes fucking golden clockwork shit fucking golden art hellboy 2 golden army it might as been might as well have been fucking Hellboy Two Army of Upright fucking Scarabs or something because they were all just these fucking clockwork golems. Yeah, and that's all that fucking whole end sequence down down there was where he actually well he wouldn't have been in that sequence but technically the ruler of that land at one point would have been Jesus, <laughs> Gray Jesus. There you go. <laughs> it all comes back because he played uh, the little girls fairy father i can't remember elvish father whatever they were supposed to be the magical father not a real father yeah yeah. or kind of a real father depending on how you interpret the fairy tale aspect and good point but yeah uh, i guess after jerking off del toro for a little bit god i I mean jesus i I still want to well the other thing that this sets up (laughs) is you have the insect theme which i mean he also did mimic yeah he sure did it's not his proudest work you know there's several reasons why but no but he did eventually get a director's cut put out and i didn't know that i only ever saw the theatrical cut because they didn't put out they didn't put out the director's cut till 2011 now i want to see it director's cut where he finally got the final edit on it we might have to do like a small mini-sode or something that'd be fun at some point yeah give our take on it there's one thing though before we bounce off del toro that we're actually going to pause for a second well i'm going to ask you first 
he got to do kind of he got to touch and incorporate and leave his mark on a pop culture icon and he did one of the simpsons couch gags did you ever see his simpsons couch gag i'm gonna say probably not but then again i may have i can't remember i can't recall I didn't uh, inhale. So <laughs> we're going to pause this for a second, and I'm going to show you this, because his couch gag is possibly the most perfect thing for this show ever, to the point where when we put this episode up, I am going to put up the YouTube link on the, the website, on the page for the... On the sequel. Twitters? And yeah, well, Instagram. not... not, not well, well, maybe. I might share it to the Twitters and the we'll Facebook, see. but for sure when you go onto the website and you go onto the episode oh, page, it'll be on there for sure. Because it is just chock-a-block full of horror. And you have to see this, and I want to get your reaction. So we're going to pause it for a second, we'll be right back. Pause for the cause. Dude. All right, Danny, your hot take on that. <laughs> yeah, because we just literally just finished watching it, dude. That is perfect. Like you said, it's perfect for what we do. Now, it does help oh if you gosh. have uh, a lot of familiarity with Del Toro's work. Because a lot of the first half of it is huge references to just him. But there's so many references to all across the horror spectrum and uh, other things that obviously influence his work. And if you've ever listened to like interviews with a man and stuff, you you know are his influences and stuff, like the the old claymations and stuff. And Gosh, man, that was awesome. I'm just sitting here thinking about some of the uh, the odes I was catching, just watching it, and I'm like, wow, I have to sit here. And run. I'd have to watch it several times because it's awesome. One. But to just try to catch all the references. Yeah, it was the uh, Treehouse of Horror 24 opening. Like I said, we'll, we'll throw up the link. Yeah, it's, I'm excited to watch that again. Whew, it's something, dude. It's so many things packed into that two and a half minutes. It's a long one. But it's great. That's fine. It's worth it. I guess I don't have too much more to say about them right now. But No, not too much. Uh, something might snag in my memory, and I might bring him back up here in a minute, because no, he is a just awesome guy. I, I do own quite a few of his different movies, not necessarily his horror ones, but like the Hellboys and this and that. And I tend to watch all the special features associated. And I've always just sort of felt like the guy is like the older Mexican brother I've ne never had. Like, he's into a bunch of the same shit and a lot of the same influences as me growing up. The same sort of shit that I got into. Yeah, even down to, like, just a crossover to the fact that I'm a giant nerd and fucking go all gaga for comic books and shit. He was attached to a, what would essentially be a Justice League Dark movie that they're calling Dark Universe. It's still in production, but it's another thing that he ended up having to step away from. I do think that they're still using lots of elements of his script, but I'm not positive on that. Still leaves his fingerprints on it. But the thing I'm pretty sure they're doing, though, is they're going to still go with his team lineup, which was basically my dream lineup for what would be a Justice League Dark with Swamp Thing, Constantine, Etrigan the Demon, Zatanna, and Deadman all together on a team. Throwing a little bit like Madame Xanadu and Black Orchid, and we're, we're fucking good to go. So, which is probably what would end up happening. But seeing all of those fucking demon and swamp thing fighting side by side on a team on fucking screen together would just, oh my god! Like, yeah. I, I would, ho I would hope nobody'd be fucking sitting in front of me in the theater because first they'd have something poking in the back of their head the whole time, and then just everything in front of me is just going to be sticky. So that's sticky, icky. It happens. But no, I think that'd be awesome, man. Yeah. Moving on. God. No, we, we talked to, or alluded to the fact that this film is, is predicated upon a, an old alchemist who was on the run from the Inquisition. 15, was it like 37, 36? He okay, built yeah. this device 
its sole purpose was to grant eternal life or the pursuit of eternal life. 400 years later, 1937, some vault collapsed. They found this gentleman whose skin shined like marble in the moonlight. He was mortally pierced, essentially. Through his heart. And his final words were, Soy tempore. And that means, in time, all things will pass. Or you know, something mm-hmm. to that effect. It interludes now into like modern times, 1992, 93. And I suppose maybe Guadalajara, Mexico. He's probably paying an ode back to his childhood, Del Toro, that is. But it does showcase Jesus Gris and his family, Mercedes, and his granddaughter, Aurora. Mm-hmm. And we find out that he owns an antique shop. And in that antique shop, well, as actually as a part of that estate, before I, I get into the whole antique shop, as a part of the estate from the alchemist who passed away from that vault collapse, they had an estate sale of all his belongings. But before that, when the detectives went in to search the home, they could not release the facts of what they found to the press or to the general population. Oh, yeah, because it gets kind of set up early on that you're like, oh, it's kind of... You see, like, pans of blood, and this guy turned upside down. I guess he's been insinuated. Well, and that's the thing. I, if, you, if you're going in this movie for the first time, it, if you're not familiar you don't with know. the vampire lore, maybe, or some of the aspects of it. Well, and even then, that that doesn't necessarily doesn't, mean vampire. It doesn't, no, you're right. It, it means... Could be just fucking a killer. Right. You start to get strong hands vampire, that's for sure. Because you know that the dude lived for at least 400 years, yeah, and he's got white skin, and... Dude's getting bled out. But it's still really weird so far. Like, it doesn't scream vampire at you. It is kind of funny now that I look at it because there's a scene with Jesus and his granddaughter, and they're putting a puzzle together. So for those of you who are, who are not following along, we're kind of piece the puzzle together for you in these steps. That's part of the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, anywho, like skipping forward, as a part of that estate sale, I suppose, because there's antiques there, Jesus got a part of this because we find that he has a statue that these gentlemen are looking for. Like some random guy comes in, search, searching super for sketchy. whatever. Yeah, he does look super sketchy. He's yeah, kind of nonverbal for a little bit. He just kind of, yeah, absent. And then a little bit later on, he notices that they're definitely still casing the place and having an interest Making in whatever he calls. found and shit. But dude comes in, pays, I mean, and by dude, I mean Ron fucking Perlman comes yeah. in. He comes in because those guys who were scouting it, they found a statue they were looking for. We'll find out here in a little bit why. Ron Perlman gets the message. He tells his uncle, his T.O., mm-hmm. who appears to be in some kind of condition because he's in this, I don't know, this isolation room. Oh, yeah, he's all, he's all cut off. And it kind of seemed cancer but maybe yeah. not. Maybe something else. But it could be, yeah. There's some kind of progressive infestation that's fucking him up. Kind of cancery. It's kind of cancery, yeah. Little, oh. Something seemed a little cancery. They discover that this statue might have some significance, right? That's when Perlman, Ron Perlman's character, Angel de la Guarda, he comes and visits the shopkeeper, Jesus and his Oh, well, I guess he doesn't visit until dude's already has it out and it's fucking pierced him and shit. Because he buys it. He's just like, cool, this is it, and he fucking buys it. That's what I'm saying. He comes in because he knows that statue's there. Those guys allude to the fact they give him that phone call. Right. But he's already hasn't he already found it by then? That's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, he's yeah. already found it by yeah, then. Yeah, meaning the grandfather. Because mm-hmm. he knows this guy's been snooping around. And you see um, like the, the, where the, one of the eyes has been caved in in the statue. One of the cockroaches come out. Yeah, and, and then that's when the granddaughter, she smashes them. And he tells them, don't entice them. And if you, you make can see it into the future when you're first watching it, you're like, ooh, mimic. There's a scene in there that it really has a lot of significance in terms of how he uses themes 
throughout his films, specifically this one, heavily influenced by you know him being raised Catholic. Yeah. So when you see Jesus interact with the device, right, we get to see how it pierces him, latches on, does all that stuff. But it also signifies perhaps the stigmata. Right, and I mean he's he's gray Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He's being granted eternal life. It's not. I mean, it's not too. Uh, he's not like making it too. I don't know. No, but he's yeah. using those themes. I mean, you can well, see the it, parallel, of course. Yeah, the, there's saying, these parallels. Not, there's these things that he secretive. grew up with, and and he's relating these things. Yeah, in the in the storytelling form. But yeah, it's alluding to the fact that it's the stigmata. That's how he's portraying it. But yeah, after all those series of events, I think he even um, he startles the little girl right mm-hmm. with that and tells her he's okay, all that shit. She shouldn't have done it. Well, I mean, and here's the thing, like. That's, like you said, that's sort of the beginning, like there's the stigmata and shit. And we already know it's supposed to give eternal life, and so you're already setting up those themes. But then it continues to come out throughout, because later on, he, in an act of desperation to get some relief from the fact that his wound is itching, he decides to use the device again. And when he does it, he's praying while using it, almost in an effort to protect himself, it seems like. As kind of like a buffer, maybe a default. Past that point, he tends to use it to pierce his heart. Yeah, it goes from the hand to the, yeah, straight to the chest at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. But yeah, in that desperation, as you see him, I think that for me, when I was watching, is like, okay, I can see where he's starting to, to make that change over into the, the vampire side. He's getting this hunger. He even starts to nod his hand feverishly a little mm-hmm. bit. And you see the plate of the red meat. And you see Del Toro using those blue tones. He used that for a really strong purpose. He wanted the blood to kind of, he does not really stand out and make it look gorish, but he didn't want it to be overly played. He wanted to signify almost his purity in, the, in that form. But yeah, anyhow, the whole time that the granddaughter is witnessing these things, this transformation that the grandfather's going through. So she does a fantastic job in this movie because she conveys a range of emotions while having only one word said in the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, that's the only time you ever get to hear her speak is the well pivotal scene the at the end. Oh, pivotal man. scene at the end. I'll talk about He's that. finally almost going full vamp and is looking at her like she's food. And she just... She has a moment. They have that moment. Abuela. That's sad. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah, he's like, ah! Yeah, fucked him up. Yeah. I like the fact that because this is his Del Toro's debut, you can see how he's using these themes with children later on in his film telling. Oh, yeah, because especially when I was, like, watching this, it reminded me of, like, uh, even back to Pacific Rim with uh, Stacker Pentecost and what's her name? I can never remember the chick's name. I'm bad Sorry. Too, unless I Sorry. Uh, yeah, the only reason I remember Stacker Pentecost is like because it's one of the cooler fucking names ever. Stacker Pentecost, damn. God, I mean, there we go. Like, there's there's another little connection right there. You have him working on Pacific Rim, who one of the leads is Charlie Hunnam, who is most famous as being Jax Teller, Sons of Anarchy, with Ron Perlman, who's in this fucking movie and is in most of Guillermo del Toro's shit. As Claire Morrow in Sons, we've talked about on this podcast before that I'm a huge fan of Sons. Yeah, you talked about you having the posters as soon as you walk into your, uh, your building. I'm a huge fan of fucking Ron Perlman in general, dude. Perlman's the man. I remember seeing reruns of him in Beauty and the Beast when I was young. That came on... If I'm not mistaken, I want to say like super early 90s, maybe even late 80s, like 89, 90, 91, somewhere around that time period. But I do remember it being on because it was a huge hit at the time. I definitely remember seeing him in like Alien Resurrection in 97, and me at the Gates. Something huge maybe people don't remember or don't realize because they've only played from like New Vegas on. But Fallout 1, 2, and 3... 
the opening intros voiceover was all Ron Perlman and the fucking famous the war war never changes that was I mean a huge part being a gamer growing up dude the fallout intros were this shit with his voiceover because that's the other thing fucking voiceover artist you've probably heard him in a bunch of different shit maybe not even realized it just doing the films that we have covered and learning all these different actors and actresses who do crossover work into video game voiceover acting cartoon voiceover acting it amazes me it blows my mind man and he's no stranger to either one of those realms well like i know that a lot of people watch teen titans oh that's a huge hit with my nephews he's slayed He's Deathstroke in Teen Titans. That's awesome. Fucking, if you want to go animation a little bit more for the older crowd. Oh, deeper. If, if you got into the fucking Afro Samurai, I loved me some Afro yeah. Samurai. He was Justice. Bam. Who was like the bad guy, basically. I mean, fucking a bunch of shit. He was Sozin in Avatar Last Airbender. He's been in a bunch of the different fucking Batman things as a bunch of different characters. There's a film that I watched. It's a French film, and the reason being is because, um, you know, I enjoy films outside of the horror genre as well. This French film I'm going to mention is called uh, City of Lost Children. can't remember the director's name right off the top of my head. I do apologize, but he went on to direct Amelie and some other French films that are worth note. Uh, Delicatessen and some other films like that, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Ron Perlman was in those films, or at least in uh, City of Lost Children. So I'm not unfamiliar with him being in films that are not in in English. And that's a brilliant film. It's a beautiful film. And it, it involves children as well in that film. And I feel like across the board, if people have played a shooter game on a console especially in Xbox, one of the ones they've probably played is one of the Halo series. And in Halo 2 and 3, he was the voice for Fleet Admiral Terrence Hood. And I always remember catching his voice like, yeah, I'm fucking surfing under Ron Perlman. Everything's going to go good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Until years later when he was backstabbing son of a bitch as Clay Morrow and Sons of Anarchy. Are but he did fucking fantastic in that role. I mean, that's, so. you know, that's not And he is yeah, Hellboy, yeah. so... They're rebooting, and I'm kind of excited to see what... What's his name? David Harbour? I think that's his name. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm excited to see what he does with it, because I think that is really good casting. But, I mean, fucking Ron Perlman's Hellboy. Yeah. He barely needs makeup for that role. Like, When I started looking at him in this film, in Chronos, uh, I was like, man, I can definitely see him now as the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, the television series. It's like, man, he didn't need much makeup, not really. No, he's famous for being in makeup roles, though. No doubt, no doubt about that. Which, I mean, let's be honest, he has kind of a unique face. He does, it's a, it's a very unique face, like you say. The structure. He's kind of ugly, kind of, but it's not really. <laughs> he's handsome, but... He's not a 10, but he ain't dog ugly either. It's, it's unique. I don't know what else to say, but he's actually even one of the only celebrities I follow on like social media and shit. Cause cool. he's just kind of a interesting, kind guy. of a cool guy. Not not the most interesting. Yeah, I probably there's probably celebrities that I'd probably would rather follow, but I'm kind of lazy. But you know, whatever. We'll get it onto it. But I do follow him. I'm like, hey, that's awesome. I get to know what Ron Perlman's doing today. That makes me feel good. No, it's really cool getting to see some of these actors that you're familiar with in other films that are like, whoa, I, I didn't realize they were in this fucking film. It's a damn French film and Ron Perlman's in it. But it just shows you his range, too, you know? Right. But he's basically... I mean, the bad guy is the old guy that's dying. And Ron Perlman is, like you said, his nephew. But he's the actual, like, physical force doing things because other dude's dying. His name is interesting, too. Like, the angel, the guardian angel, maybe, of LaGuardia. I also love that originally his character was supposed to be completely fluent in Spanish. And Ron Perlman doesn't speak 
Spanish badly, no. but he couldn't give the type of performance that was required of the role in fluent Spanish. On the Criterion copy of the, the movie, there's an interview where Perlman talks about that. He said he got the script from his agents and things like that from Del Toro, and he said that Del Toro referenced like all these kind of vague films that Perlman was in, like, it wasn't lead roles, there's like these, the way that Perlman used it, he's like, these are some of the roles I would be ashamed to mention, <laughs> right? But he said he felt like it was it was honest and uh, endearing, and anyhow, he communicated with him, a Del Toro came up to L.A. from Guadalajara, met with him for lunch, he said that was the one thing that bonded them was Del Toro liked to eat a lot, right? So he said, all right, here's what I want you to do, come down to Mexico, we're gonna, you know, rehearse the line. Because it's supposed to be all in Spanish, Ron Perlman was trying to learn Spanish in a three-week period for his scenes, his dialogue. Right. So that's why some of it's in English, some of it's in Spanish. But uh, he said the whole time when he was mentioning that to Del Toro, Del Toro's like, he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Let's go ahead and have lunch. So his response every time that Perlman was having some issues, they'd sell it over lunch. Nice. Well, and that's the other thing was that they kind of had to retool his character a little bit because it was supposed to just be that Perlman and his father were just like not your run-of-the-mill Mexicans instead of having like your stereotypical like Mexican mobsters or whatever. They were kind of more just like the kind of upper-class white mobsters you'd see, except they were Mexican. Yeah, but there's, there's the, huge they ended up about that culture in general. But they ended up making it so that he was basically an expat yeah. who almost purposely sp- spoke little Spanish because he despised the fact that he had to take live care of here. his Spanish or his Mexican uncle who's dying and he's serving as his watchdog essentially, mm-hmm. his whipping boy. And having to go do all of his shit for him and yeah. he's not telling him the full story on anything, which you learn later on because he doesn't know that it's supposed to fucking the reason he's looking for it is to try to keep him alive longer. There's some he funny, just knows that he's looking for a device. There's some funny exchanges that Ron Perlman has as, as Angel <laughs> one in particular where he's listening to a tape an audio tape of plastic surgery because of his nose oh dude that was such a funny little running gag throughout the fucking movie it's i love so that funny, his little fucking nose cards oh my god and then i was actually dude i was on his side when he fucking when he was celebrating when he found found out that his uncle was finally dead i wasn't necessarily cool with that the fact that i was like man you didn't have to finish him off you could have just let him bleed out like it was probably a little bit better to get it over with quick but yeah, I suppose yeah, so. Whatever. Maybe that's his way of ending the suffering. Yeah, but I was just like, fucking, yeah, Uncle's, I mean, you're kind of a, you're a dick too in this movie, but Uncle's also a dick, and I'd kind of rather you have the shit than him, so. Yeah, I could see that. I could see Perlman running the business. Uncle, well, honestly. Like, Uncle was a power-hungry dick that wanted immortality for probably nefarious reasons, it seemed like, so. I wonder what they were running at that point, that Enterprise. I, never I don't know, but it seemed like they were fucking They were loaded, hustling. So. Yeah, they were hustling, for real. Yeah, they were. But uh, I suppose the whole point, I guess getting back to this story, too, is that the shopkeeper, Jesus, has that what LaGuardia wants, the dying LaGuardia wants. He even has the manuscripts from the Alchemist. He's, he's gone that far into looking for it. And because of those facts, uh, Jesus, he's kind of elusive, right, from, from the LaGuardias. He doesn't want them to have it because he... He knows its power. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't know what exactly its intended purposes are, what it does. But it's it's interesting, man, the way that uh, they have those exchanges, those fights. He seems like he's always getting fucked up by Ron Perlman. Yeah, that's true. Ron Perlman bugs him up a lot in this film. I, I kind of like the fact that 
like he sort of realized the power shift too. Like when he knew when when yeah, when, was the, when the older Laguardia, his reaction to finding out that Jesus. Had, <laughs> I'm just gonna call him Jesus. Yeah, we called the Jesus. The Jesus. When the when Jesus. he found out, Gray Jesus. I like that. Was called Gray Jesus. When he found out that Gray Jesus had used the device, his entire like demeanor the way he was, changed, yeah, his yeah. demeanor changed, and so he wasn't so polite. And he picked anymore. up on that, and he's like, he knew that he had some sort of power now, as long as he kept it away from him. He might, I mean, he could even give it to him. He realized that he has a connection to it now, though, and so he holds more power, and he's able to get away with shit throughout the movie. Yeah. I thought that was pretty neat. I did like the way that you get to see the transformation of the Gray Jesus. He starts off with the mustache. He's old. He wears a hat and glasses, and he looks like a grandfather. But as soon as he gets pierced by the Kronos device. It feeds that insect. Like I said, he uses insects. He uses a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? This not being a stranger to it. It feeds that device, which also grants the great Jesus eternal life. And you see the transformation throughout the film. He shaves his mustache off. He even goes a little unbuttoned a little it's bit. Like, yeah. He even gives uh, Mercedes a little smooch and she's like, ooh, hold on. You look younger. <laughs> a little suave. And later on, they're at the, at the New Year's Eve party and you can see him being really suave and I was gonna say, man, I'm like, I'm Latino. I, I hope when I get to be 63, 64, whatever the character's age was supposed to be, I'm looking that suave, that There's almost like Ricardo Montalbanish, oh, almost like. No strange. Dude, that, that was a good looking man up on that screen, and he's all smoothed out. He was looking. I like the exchange he had in the mirror looking at himself. He was, you know, kind of inspecting his skin. And then, yeah, he did the, the yeah, the little pantomime with his, mm -hmm. his face and smiling. And he knew. But that kind of shows you, too, like the traditional classic Dracula that has the mustache. But now he's more suave, debonair. He almost has, like, a, a certain control over his wife a little bit. But like then, I mean... Magnetic control. Not that not it's intended. It's just that he has that draw now back to her. So now here's the question. He got to looking all youthful and brilliant and this and that, and then he died. That was ooh, and that shit was went to hell. That was intense. would it, if he would have not died and been reborn, would he have just continued looking awesome and young and debonair, or would have all of his shit started to rot anyway on his I new think, flesh? I think he would have started to, to have the whole transformation of the skin anyway because that happened with the alchemist. So at some point he. But do you think that? But do you think the alchemist might have died at some point? And the the same thing. He was reborn. We don't know. Really. There's a lot of vampire myths where there is sort of a reborn where they they yeah, die I know first. What you mean. I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. But that's you know he maybe maybe he would have stayed young. Do you, yeah. Do you only get the or or do you only get the the staying young look for like two weeks and then you're fucked anyway? Yeah. I don't know. We sh we need answers. <laughs> See, this would be a good time for people to comment for us. Let us know your thoughts. That, and that was the only thing, like, I, maybe it would have looked funny. It probably would have looked funny, which is probably why they didn't do it. There was a big part of me that wanted that whole, like, last quarter of the movie with him to have ripped off all of his face skin and have it be the marble, the alabaster face, it rather awesome. than, I think I like, know. the sort of patchy. Yeah, because it is it's really splotchy. Now, the, the patchy kind of reminded me of Frankenstein's monster, though, and I know that Guillermo is a huge Frankenstein fanboy. I would imagine so. he, he threw that reference in there. To From what I understood, it's, and he even commented, Del Toro commented on the fact that when the great Jesus, Jesus, mm -hmm. was, you know, he put his hand inside of his stomach and it started going up it. That was the alluding, the allegorical thing about the doubting Thomas. Oh, okay. Like, he, wasn't, he was unsure, really, of that transformation. He was still having doubts. Uh, so that's why he didn't 
completely come out of his shell per se. Because then he, because he is out of the shell at the very end. Yeah, which is really bittersweet, man. That shit was sad. And he didn't look that great. No, it, I mean he looked exactly like the alchemist when he was dying. So maybe that alludes to the fact that that happens as they're dying, maybe. Right. And I'm wondering would he had looked like youthful and alabaster skinned if he would have been like feeding extremely regularly or something and like using the device all the time. I don't know. Like I'm trying to see an upside to being like a Kronos vampire. Because as it is, it seems like it just makes you weird looking and old and dependent on blood. That's about it. Like said, it, it makes it you look like the fucking the emperor. Yeah. Almost, uh... That's dependent on a fucking needle. Well, you're like you're like a heroin vampire. I was gonna say. Yeah. Yeah, you're heroin vampire. You're the fucking heroin <laughs> vampire. Kronos <laughs> oh, yeah. is the fucking heroin vampire movie. I mean, he is out in the street, and he's all slum, steps in glass, takes a string out of his mouth. It shows, I was gonna say, it shows in the newspaper that he finds his obituary. Mm-hmm. It was like 1940 to 19... Well, actually, it was like... 90, it could have been 97. It was 1947 to something, I think. To 97. So most of the movie takes place, because it's right around the holiday season. It's it's December and January. So it's December 96, yeah, January Christmas 97. Around Christmas. It technically takes place oh, in the future. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I, was like, cause it's, I think his age in the film was supposed to be 57, but he had an older character in mind, like a 60-year-old character, but they re- rewrote it, I guess, for Federico. Because they wanted Max Van Seidel as the, the lead oh, character. originally, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, he was much older at that time. But anywho, anywho. Yeah, so technically from when the movie was made, most of the movie takes place in the future. Because it's supposed it to take sense. place in 96 and 97. And his death date being in the future makes him, when he died, the same age that Federico was when they made the movie. <laughs> Interesting, that's pretty cool. The way the math works out, so... Those damn geniuses. Yeah, it was That's just really sort of cool. a neat little fun little shout out. Yeah. Like I said, I, I really enjoy this film, and I, I said there was a couple of things I had to come clean with on the podcast. Okay. So two of them was prior to us doing the Vampire Month and prior to me even mentioning this film. I had not seen this film before. Okay. Right? I knew about the film because, you know, I'm familiar with Pan's Labyrinth. I own that film. Seen The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy, Pacific Rim, all these films. Just never got to see Kronos. It was kind of a, I won't say hard film to find because it's not, not really, but sometimes you have to do a little digging, right? I just didn't put the effort in. Anyway, second one was uh, the connection that the great Jesus has with his granddaughter. He said that, you know, he even gives an ode at the end of the film in memory to his grandmother. Oh, yeah. You know, so it shows the bond. And he uses those the connection, that bond, the childhood memories, the nostalgia, things like that a lot in his films. So, you know, if you if you had those kind of you know, bonds with your grandparents or if you're familiar with even just bonds within your family members, you can probably relate a little bit to that because there's, you know, there's some heartfelt moments. Yeah. No, this is a, it's a pretty slow moving movie overall. Yeah. Especially for being a vampire movie, but it pays off. And like you said, there's a lot of like sort of emotional moments and there's a lot of just weird tension built up by the fact that like he kind of doesn't know what's going on and knows that he's suddenly... He just knows that pulled into this bad situation, yeah. and there's people that have the answers, but they don't seem like very good people. And there's something that was cool that you had mentioned was that, like, so the whole time the the granddaughter she was witnessing, she knew, you know, at a certain well, and then point that she by especially the when end, she was following. But yeah, I, she was a little badass. Yeah, she was a little badass. <laughs> Her she, she fucked up. Therapy LaGuardia. later on is going to be weird. Well, there might be a reason why she hasn't been in much work if any at all are after this film <laughs> like it's hard to find anything on her but she does a brilliant job and likes it just 
that connection that they have in the film was really cute. I liked the scene where she's kind of rearranging that room where he, I guess he keeps like toys and stuff for her, and she makes that that toy trunk into mm-hmm. his coffin. Oh right! And there's that. Oh, moment, I loved that scene. That there's such... a moment where you know the rays are coming through those little poke holes, and I guess in the roof, mm-hmm. and he starts you know he starts to burn, 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 baby. But the, he does something too, like not not only that, but he also does it too with his hand when the scarab. The mm-hmm. is in his hand. Where he said he was trying to mimic a little bit, or at least, um, no puns intended, but Del Toro was like, I wanted to give Ode a little bit to Christopher Lee because oh. of his mannerisms and some sort of the... Bleh. Yeah, exactly. Which is more Lugosi to say bleh, but whatever. But yeah, he's given all these nods because he knows it's not it's not that classic telling, mm-hmm. but he still wants to use, you know, his childhood, things that he's familiar with, give little nods. But uh, I thought those were cool moments. And they even had that bond where he's like, you know, I'm going through this change. I don't know what it is, but he says, like, like I want you to be there. Like, we need each other or some shit like that. And then, boom, it clicked. And she knew that yeah. she was in it for the rest of that ride. That kind of what you were just saying about Del Toro sort of reminded me of the fact that one of the things I've always appreciated through most of his movies is that if you do take the time to, like, read and listen to interviews with him and stuff and yeah. know, know what he likes then you see that in his work, in a lot of ways, he's a more subtle Tarantino, where his references are definitely... Where, where the things that inspired him are always spread throughout his work. Oh, yeah. But they're worked in in a lot more subtle ways than, than say, like, I mean, Kill Bill always comes to mind for Tarantino, where it's just, like, pretty blatant reference after pretty blatant reference, but... It's an interesting way, like I said, how directors or writers or whomever, they show their influences, how it spreads through them. And he's very conscious about what he's doing. Oh, no. When he wants to invoke certain moods, it's it's very much on purpose. The What you're talking about, the, the grandfather, the, her making the little kind of casket for him. Yeah, yeah. It was this very just sort of like dark, like this oh, like gothic feeling. And he oh, knows how to do that. Gothic, He's yeah. he he very much knows gothic. I mean, Crimson Peak shows that off in spades that he knows gothic. Like, there's even that whole mention of that gothic storytelling. So I mean, he, he uses that all the fucking time. But you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't know. Like, I really feel like I want to go watch a lot more Guillermo del Toro movies right He's now. Funny. Actually, and, uh, like I said, a, a lot of the reason why I chose this film too, I have to do, you know, I have to give a little mention of that is. You know, there's a plethora. There's, you know, numerous films I could have chosen. Either one of us could choose for the, the post-1990. But I was thinking, you know, we, we've talked about Del Toro. I know that, you know, that you're a fan. I'm a fan of his work. Probably from different, you know, angles. Mm-hmm. Just like any other person coming into it. But I felt like it was an appropriate time to talk about this guy because it kind of shows off what we're familiar with, what other people are familiar with. I really like his storytelling because like it's super nostalgic and uh, usually there is you kind of see it from multiple angles like so we get to see it from uh, it looks like a clumsy guy at the beginning the grandfather like he's a typical grandfather he even shows up with his hand fucked up at that yeah. studio he seems clumsy now was it saw. was it kind of surprising when you realized kind of how well off they actually kind of they did they, they weren't middle, they weren't super well family. off because they sort of those were like when they went to the party and stuff, those were like, they're good clothes for being out once, you know, once a year, good clothes. Not like they can do that all the time. But the circles that they sort of ran in, it seemed like they were... Sketchy? No, not necessarily sketchy, but on the, maybe on the lower end of high class. I gotcha. like I gotcha. 
<laughs> lower middle class, maybe. Well, no, not lower middle class. Like maybe upper middle class, lower high class. Oh, like I, I see what you mean. I got you. I got you. But no, it didn't. It didn't come off that way in the very beginning. No, but then even you, when he's like filming through the street scenes, like mm-hmm. it's supposed to be Christmas, and you see the street scenes, and they're all kind of you see like newspaper and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, but he is like an antiques dealer, man. Like, I mean, just just the film, the way it, it mm-hmm. leads oh, yeah. up to it, you know. But yeah, then you see the family, and it was like, oh, okay, they have a little bit of some cash. Yeah, trading antiques, shit. I don't know. That that got me wondering. Maybe not. I mean, like I said, that was sort of their once a big, you know, once a year big party out. But could be a front. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Family um, business. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have too much more to say about this, though. I think we hit on most of the points I wanted to make about it. Like, it's it's a really unique vampire movie. Yeah, very if, unique. If you want more of a uh, almost like a like you said a fairy ish story, but more with um, like said so these emotional connections to the central characters, that's a good film. Like I said, it's his debut, so think about that. It's not perfect. It shows his later filmmaking progression. How he's turned that around and created these beautiful films, these landscapes that are beautiful to watch. Storytelling's magnificent. I know. Oh yeah, always. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm glad I own this film. I'm glad we got to talk about it because, like, when we go back to vampire films, I'll probably keep it a little bit more in the in the central vein of vampires. We will go back at some point. Yeah. And we'll go back next week to finish it off. Are you excited? You know what time it is, right? I know exactly what time it is, and I am excited. What's your guess? All right, I'm gonna give you. At least one film, because I know we've talked about this person, I don't know how many times, or this movie, how many times. I was like, is he going to choose in Brooklyn? Is he going to go Eddie Murphy? I'm not. Okay. I'm not. I was thinking about it until you did Blackula. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Funny. I'm not going to lie. I, I know was, we, we alluded I probably, to that movie a lot. And I probably still wouldn't have done it, but it was in the mix until you did Blackula. <laughs> no, that's cool. I Like I said, I just knew the fact that we have talked about it. I know that you... That, I mean, I like it too, man. It's just it's a it's a good film. Uh, Damn, okay, uh, I'll I'll give you right, one yeah, more try. One more try, okay. One more try. Uh, I know we, I know you thought that maybe I was gonna pick Bob Rod, but I don't think you're gonna pick Bob Rod on this one. Um, damn. The only thing I could think, maybe, I don't know if you're going to do comedy or light with it. Because that's another thing you could do. I, then I, honestly, I don't know, man. I don't All know. right. 1998, starring James Woods. Oh, nice. Yeah. John Carpenter's Vampires. Awesome, dude. That's a good film. And that even, that, that comes back to us in a weird way, which we'll talk about with one of the lead actresses in that film. Oh, yeah. I'm, I love this movie. That's we'll awesome. get into that more later. Damn, we get to talk about I love that movie. Ones. Yeah, fucking Baldwin, son. Woods and Baldwin. That's fucking dope, man. That's all you need right there. And John Carpenter. And I don't know if I've, uh, I don't know if I've seen this movie in about, ooh, god, maybe at least eight years. So that's gonna be interesting going back to it. It comes on on occasion, like on cable. I mean, I say cable, I mean like stars and encore and shit. So I usually catch it like in the fucking middle of the movie, and I don't like mm-hmm. doing that when I'm watching movies, unless I've seen them like a million times. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm glad we're doing this one, man. This is gonna be fun. Yeah, it's gonna be um, a good way to to kind of, I guess, close that segment of our our vampire movie. Our vampires, and then it's wide open again. I don't know what we're gonna do. I've been thinking about it, but I don't know which direction we're we're quite going in it yet. We'll talk about it more later. I want to think about John Carpenter and vampires and James Woods. Damn, that's gonna be fun, man. We get to talk about Carpenter again. I don't, dude. Yeah, of course we're gonna come back to Carpenter because he did how many movies? How many horror movies? Well, (laughs) let's be honest here, right? (laughs) I mean, we're gonna hit him again. We're gonna hit Craven again. Like, yeah, there's a lot of guys we haven't even talked about it yet. God, I mean, we're gonna end up hitting Takashi Miike again when it comes down to it. So. 
it's inevitable. It's inevitable, especially because there's just people that we like that we'd rather bring to you than other people. That's just the way it goes because we're people too. Yeah, we have unique views and they need to be heard. But like I said, I'm glad that uh, we got to cover Del Toro's Chronos. Oh my God, so am I. I love GDT. I'm glad I got to show you that Simpsons gag. God damn, that was awesome, man. That. <laughs> Go watch that. Go that's, to our website. That's the best thing that I've watched probably today. I mean, outside of watching the movie and, and listening to our editing, <laughs> you know, that's the best thing I've seen all day. But in order to keep up with us as we go into our last week of Vampires and Beyond, maybe, I mean, maybe to the Beyond? Isn't there a movie called The Beyond that's probably horror-ish? Probably. So, yeah. <laughs> I know about this stuff. <laughs> But uh, you can continue following us, please. Uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Stitcher. Follow us on our website, www. That was way too many W's. <laughs> com. Twitter, at Fried Squirms. Instagram? Right? Instagram, we got Fried Squirms. Fried Squirms podcast. Podca- yeah, Fried Squirms Podcast. Facebook, Fried Squirms. Jesus, like we're we're actually kind of doing some of this stuff sometimes. So yeah, I think once we get some of these more fresh episodes up and popping, got some some photos I want to share on the grams and maybe on the twitters. And, like and so we've got all some videos we want to share. There's some cool shit we're gonna start sharing. Hopefully. Yeah. Maybe. I, I mean, we're lazy. So. Like I said, it there's happens. lots of stuff we put this off. We're already. in the dog days of summer. That's yeah, dude. This isn't helping. Like this is another hot one, dude. So yeah. I don't know. It's going to be... It'll be nice. I'm going to go get caught up on Preacher and Game of Thrones, though, here in a little bit. So. Dude, I haven't seen either one of the episodes of, of Game of Thrones, but that gives me a reason to catch up on it. I saw the first one, but I haven't seen the second Dude, one Dude, I yet. fell asleep, and it wasn't, it wasn't because of the episodes, because I was watching it almost at midnight. I know how it goes. I know how it goes. The struggle, dude. Struggle's real. So... We're going to watch shit. We're going to listen to shit. There's I hope that you watch. That oh, you know what? I want to give... Okay. I, I shouted them out once already. Yeah, you did. I know what you're um, yeah, Sweet. I shouted them out once already, but I hadn't actually listened to the podcast. I just liked the idea. But I actually listened to their bo- podcast, and it's really, really fucking good. So before we sign off, I want to shout out the fucking... This is so weird. Like, Dizzy Channel, Friendship is Magic podcast uh, on this fucking Secret Weapons Productions our buddies do another podcast for the the same people the secret weapon or whatever yeah so if you like music uh, they, the yeah echo. if you like music there's end of the echo but Disney channel uh fucking Disney channels because i i actually really really like disney channel original movies so i listen to those girls and they're really funny they get fucking day drunk and awesome. talk about the movies <laughs> and it's really fucking good i actually really really i was sitting there like closing at work listening to it and fucking rolling laughing it was great so thank you girls keep it up i'm gonna keep listening i want to check them out i'm familiar with some of those movies because my sister one of my other sisters are really into disney channel movies originals after i listened to that episode (laughs) i had to like look up a list of all the disney channel original movies and figure out where i watched up to because you know at a certain point i stopped watching we all do there's a cutoff point i'm sorry but it's a fact of life and so i had to figure out where i watched up to and i realized i saw less of them than i thought i had but I basically saw only the OG ones. I think my cut last one that I saw was like a 2003 one, something like that. Hmm. Maybe a little bit beyond that, but I'd have, I'd have to relook at the list. We need to look at the catalog. Yeah. Honestly, I've really, really enjoyed that podcast, so I wanted to shout them out again. Go check them out. Dizzy Channel. Fucking great. But until then, I've once again been Tyler this entire time. Yeah, I'm still here in Missoula as Danny. <laughs> Fried Scrooms out. Out. <laughs>